Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being with us on this Thursday, March 23rd. We are starting today with more reaction to that story from global investigative reporter Sam Cooper. We now know a Toronto member of Parliament at the centre of those allegations of Chinese meddling in Canadian affairs has resigned from the Liberal caucus and will now sit as an independent. Han Dong telling the House of Commons yesterday he was taking this extraordinary step in light of those media reports that he says attacked his reputation and his loyalty to Canada. He also talked about the fact that the unnamed security sources allege that he spoke with a Chinese diplomat in Toronto in February of 2021 in the case or about the case of the two Michaels. At the time, as we know, Canadians Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor had been detained in China for two years. Dong told Global News that he did meet with China's Consul General, but insists that the way the conversation is being characterized is absolutely untrue. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Warren Kinsella, who is a Toronto-based lawyer, as well as an author and consultant and previously special assistant to Jean Chrétien. Warren, thank you so much for taking some time today. Thanks, Jill. Thanks for having me on. There's so much to get to and to look at with this. Before we get more into the allegations and what has happened since Sam's story came out, I'm curious your thoughts with your background as being a special assistant to Jean Chrétien. What do you think is now happening behind closed doors as far as conversations at the PMO? Well, I think um, it's funny you mentioned that because that's exactly the question I asked a couple members of the Liberal Caucus today who I, who I know. It's like, guys, it should be evident to you after reading the reports in the Globe and Mail, uh, Sam Cooper's reports over weeks, like CSIS or some faction within CSIS is after this government. And, you know, anything that you're doing isn't working. You know, filibustering about the prime minister's chief of staff uh, testifying or pretending like you don't need a public inquiry and the special rapporteur, the independent rapporteur, all the things you've been doing to try and turn this story off are not working. And somebody continues to leak against you, whether it's within CSIS, it could be, you know, uh, somebody in an intelligence agency in another country um with which we are allied like if that is possible but it's not working and you guys need to get yourself ready for the possibility or even the likelihood that this story is going to continue to get worse and go on for months until you do something definitive to turn it off when you look at, at the reaction to this as well, and as mentioned, we, we know that Han Dong resigned from the Liberal caucus. He's now sitting as an independent MP. Uh, he also confirmed on Tuesday to Sam Cooper, he confirmed and said, yes, he did have a discussion with the Consul General in Toronto, but he said he disputed that he initiated it, and he also denied that he advised Beijing to delay releasing the two Michaels. Uh, what are your thoughts on the fact that 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 is what Sam's story says and that he has come out saying, I did talk to them, but I didn't say that. Well, I guess uh, we'll we'll find out. You know, he's removed himself from the Liberal caucus, which is the bare minimum of what he should do. And there needs to be an investigation into it. And, you know, this is why so many people, including liberals, card-carrying liberals are saying, not just conservatives, there needs to be a public inquiry into these allegations. You know, when this happened in the United States in 2016, and full disclosure, I worked for Hillary Clinton in that campaign, you know, when our campaign was hit with um, the allegations of Russian interference, like even under Donald Trump, the U.S. government took it, eventually took it seriously, and that resulted in Robert Mueller's report, and his investigation went on for two years. Hmm. Like, we need to do something uh, similar here in Canada, because whatever the government has done so far is obviously not satisfying to Canadians, and it's not getting us any closer to what the truth is, which is, what did the Prime Minister know, and when did he know it? And if he, in fact, knew about Chinese interference in the 2019 and 2021 election campaigns, what did he do about it? Right now, it doesn't look like he did anything.
And when we look at the timing of this and what has come out along this timeline, so Handong, we know, was already the subject of a CSIS probe. That started in the summer of 2019. But the PMO said this week that they only became aware of this conversation between Dong and China's Consul General, that conversation that happened in February of 2021, the PMO said they only became aware of that when Global News started asking questions about it. So does that seem odd to you, given that after finding out that that CSIS probe was underway in 2019, wouldn't the Prime Minister's office be trying to get as much information as they could from CSIS, knowing that this could possibly be coming? That is another excellent question, Um, because, yes, you're absolutely right. The first time that PMO or the Liberal Party establishment became aware of the possible, possible, I stress, Handong problem was when he became a candidate. And we know, because it's been reported as a fact and it has not been denied, that CSIS came to the Liberal Party, you know, leadership and said, you should not be taking this guy on as a candidate. So fast forward to now and what we learned late last night, which is um, CSIS was aware, apparently, of the conversation that Handong had with the consul general, China's consul general in Toronto, and did not report that to the PMO. What that suggests to me, and I think this is where you're going with your question, what that suggests to me is CSIS became dissatisfied with how PMO was reacting to, you know, briefings, intelligence briefings that CSIS was giving them and decided, okay, if they're not going to do something about it, then we're going to apply pressure using the news media. And that is how this story has unspooled is whenever the Trudeau government has refused to do something or has been moving too slowly, a story shows up in the media to push the story along. That's why I said off the top, I don't think this thing's going away anytime soon. And it looks to me like it could go, uh, you know, could go quite a bit longer. And as I said to some liberal friends this morning, it's like, guys, I think your government could be toppled by this story because it's just not stopping. Well, and you mentioned too, as far as getting to the truth, well, we know somebody isn't telling the truth here because these are two very, very different stories. So it's either CSIS, like you said, has there's somebody in CSIS that has an agenda wanting to bring down this government or or Han Dong is not telling the truth or the prime minister is not telling the truth. Uh, somewhere someone isn't telling the truth. Which to you is more troubling? I, I think it would have to be the prime minister. You know, uh, I've worked for a prime minister, as, as you mentioned off the top. I've been a chief of staff within government. Uh, I did not regularly get CSIS briefings, but I certainly got briefings from the RCMP about corruption and crime within the departments that I was part of. The Prime Minister of Canada, whoever he or she is, whatever political stripe they've got, regularly gets uh, briefings from CSIS about national security. The only other person who is in the room for those briefings is the chief of staff to the prime minister. And that person is sworn, uh, you know, to secrecy. They are uh, required, they receive a top secret security clearance, and they're not allowed to disclose anything that is discussed in those meetings. Why did the Liberal Party fight so for day after day after day with filibusters and juvenile tactics, Katie Telford, the prime minister's chief of staff, testifying? Because she wasn't going to be in a position where she could say anything meaningful anyway. Right. Why were they fighting it? It tells me that there's something that the, the Trudeau PMO is terrified about this story. And I think it's he knew it was going on in 2019 and 2021. And he you know, didn't do anything about it. Well, and and that's something I was wondering about as well, because if we look back even at the pattern for this particular prime minister, looking back to uh, the Globe and Mail wrote the story about SNC-Lavalin, about Jody Wilson-Raybould. He came out, said the story was false. Turns out it wasn't false. Then the, the narrative changed a bit. So it's possible, I suppose, the prime minister is using that playbook again. But what about staffers, the chief of staff, others in that office? They came out and said they didn't know about that February 2021 meeting until Global started asking about it, that doesn't leave any wiggle room for the story to change. No, it doesn't. And again, you know, if I was in PMO, that would make my blood run cold. 
because that means that CSIS is now not telling them things. If it's true, if it's true with this press attache and PMO said, it means that CSIS is not briefing them any longer about you know Chinese interference in our democracy and in our democratic institutions. That means PMO is just sitting there and waiting for the next shoe to drop in the media with a Sam Cooper report or a Bob Fife report in the Globe and Mail, and they don't know what's coming next. Like that is a formula for a government being in big trouble. You lose complete control of your agenda. You lose control of your members. Like I'm hearing that there's members, liberal members of parliament saying to hell with this. I'm going to get defeated in the next uh, election. I'm not going to run again. And there's quite a bit of that discussion that's now taking place because within caucus, there is a feeling that the prime minister's office has lost control of this story. And that's a very dangerous place to be politically. Uh, You kind of touched on this earlier, but do you think a public inquiry would answer these questions or what needs to be done here? Actually, paradoxically, I don't think it would because, you know, if you've been sworn under the the official secret sector, as it used to be called, and like if you had national security briefings, you couldn't speak about them publicly anyway, Hmm. right? Like any investigation into this, there should be an inquiry, but parts of it just understandably, defensively could not be public because it's national security. Our allies, at the very least, would freak out at the prospect of us discussing these things in public. So this way, again, I don't understand why the Trudeau guys have been reacting in the way they have. It's like, guys, most of this stuff is not going to be public anyway. You know, this uh, national security matters always get discussed behind closed doors, and properly so, because our national security would be compromised if we were to, you know, issue press releases about it. So, again, you know, they're, it really, it, it's like amateur hour down there. I, how they're reacting to this story absolutely bewilders me because they're only making it worse for themselves. And so what do you think needs to happen next? Well, I think it needs to be a mixture of a public inquiry. You know, 71% of liberals and 72% of conservatives favor one. But, you know, with some guardrails to ensure that we're not compromising national security and which, you know, because destabilization is the goal of the Russians and the Chinese. We've seen that in both Canada and the United States going back to 2016. And there needs to be a proper investigation of that. Like, I, I applaud the effort of global and the Globe and Mail, you know, getting the story out. And, I, you know, I work for a, a competing news organization. But really, this isn't where we should be finding out these things as citizens. We should be finding these things out from our elected representatives and independent bodies first. And um, that's not happening. And I think that's not happening because the intelligence agencies have said, to hell with it. We're not going to wait for the Trudeau guys to do the right thing anymore. We're going to force them to do the right thing. All right. Warren Kinsella, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Jeff. As we've been talking about and as you've been hearing on the news, the province of B.C. says it is doubling the number of subsidized seats for veterinary students attending the Western College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Saskatchewan. I'm pleased to announce that the Ministry of Post-Secondary Education and Future Skills is investing $21.8 million over three years to permanently double, to double the number of subsidized vet seats for BC students at the college from 20 to 40 seats. This will now be an ongoing thing. That was post-secondary education minister Selena Robinson talking about this expansion earlier today. Joining us on the line to talk more about this is Ian Payton, the BC Liberal MLA for Delta South, also the shadow minister for agriculture and food. Ian, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks. Uh, good afternoon, Joe. I know you were pushing for this uh, and raising awareness about this as well, the, the shortage of veterinarians and calling for change. What are your thoughts on this announcement? Well, to start off, Jill, one of the reasons I've been so so much behind this whole effort for the last you know five or six years is because my history as a dairy farmer uh, in Delta, my brother graduated as a veterinarian from the University of Saskatoon as well. I've been back there to the, the university, to the vet school. And um, so I know very much so how important it is for veterinarians, not only for large animals, for cattle, horses, but also for people with their pets. 
Now, this announcement today is certainly good news, but this actually isn't anything new. We, as opposition, pushed very, very hard between myself, uh, Minister Bond, and Minister Coralie uh, Oaks. Uh, we've been pushing for several years to the NDP to fund all 40 seats at University of Saskatoon Western College of Veterinary Medicine so that every student from British Columbia would pay the same um, fee of roughly $11,000 a year for tuition as opposed to a foreign student fee of uh, roughly $70,000 a year. Hmm. So, and, and is it an, an issue, too, of the fact there just are, aren't very many colleges? Even if you could put more seats, there aren't that many places for people to become veterinarians. Correct. So, Jill, I think across Canada, we've got colleges in Montreal, uh, Prince Edward Island, um, Guelph, Ontario, um, Calgary, and Saskatoon. So there's not a lot of colleges for a veterinarian. Your marks have to be extremely high to become a veterinarian. Most veterinarians put in a full four-year um, sciences degree as an undergraduate at a university before you get accepted to um, a vet college. So almost uh, more difficult to get into vet school than it is to get into medical school. Hmm. And you mentioned too, as your background as a dairy farmer, I think we tend to think more about veterinarians for pets, but obviously it's a huge deal for farming and for farm animals. Is that where do you think we're seeing the circumstances of the shortage more so? Uh, absolutely, uh, Jill. So let's think about... Um, a lot of very bright people get into vet school. Um, they go to vet school, they come back, but they're maybe from Vancouver, Burnaby, Coquitlam, Kelowna, wherever. And they go, yeah, this is great. I, I, I've always loved dogs and cats and rabbits and all those things. So they sort of want to become small animal veterinarians. What we need in, if we're going to continue with agriculture in this province, is we need veterinarians that are willing to go out and do the tough work with large animals such as horses, cattle, bison, um, those sort of things, and especially up north where there may be a veterinarian that drives two hours to get to an emergency on a, on a ranch where a cow needs to have a cesarean done or something like that, some emergencies. So we definitely have to figure out how we can get some of these veterinarians that are from northern rural regions to go back and work there. And it's, I mean, you mentioned medical school too and, and how it's, it sounds more difficult. But I mean, that's another difficulty, isn't it? Even getting medical doctors to go into more rural areas. So I would imagine for veterinarians, yeah, that is going to be a huge challenge as well. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, there's been talk of can we maybe put some kind of a pre-vet program together up uh, in Prince George at University of Northern BC. Um, and then, you know, we've, we put forward, you know, ideas to the government from the opposition as, you know, could we possibly have a, um, a, a situation where we return some, you know, um, some of the money for students that are paying for tuition if you are willing to go back and work in Williams Lake or Fort St. John or where you happen to be from so that we do have an incentive for, for graduating students to go back and work in rural northern BC areas. And do you think that's something that could happen, or what kind of a response did you get to that? Well, I, I certainly think uh, the, the response to the college in northern BC at UNBC is, you know, it's in the planning stages, there is some talk, but um, yeah, I mean, the other is something we really have to look at, because even, you know, with my own family member, my brother is a veterinarian, he goes, you know, it's, it's easy to say if you're from Vanderhoof and you become a veterinarian, doesn't necessarily mean that you're just going to go back and work in that general area. So we have to figure out how we can have incentives to have veterinarians go back and work in our remote rural areas of BC. When that's where our ranching country is, that's where our beef cattle population is, and that's where we really need more veterinarians. Uh, what about supporting as well, and again, a lot of parallels when we're looking at the medical system, but supporting uh, veterinary technologists and others that are kind of on the, the vet teams? Very important. Uh, you know, all veterinarians, you know, it's, it's, when you're dealing with horses and cattle, it's not a one-person job. You usually always need to have some sort of a, an assistant or a technician with you when you're handling huge animals that weigh 1,500 to 1,800 pounds. Um, it's quite a, quite a job sometimes. So it's very important to have more um, vet technicians and assistants 
uh, uh, um, working with large animal veterinarians. And, you know, Jill, just to go back, uh, I want to say that as opposition, we have pushed and pushed, and that's why we are a really good opposition. Between Shirley Bond, Coralie Lokes, and myself, we have pushed uh, several years ago that all 40 students would get um, the same tuition to go to college in Saskatoon. And the NDP government came through with that. Uh, and came, came through with that for us uh, just over a year ago. So that's why today's announcement, we're saying, okay, you, you funded this for one year for all 40 students. We want to see you fund it for the next four, five, six years in a row, and that's what they did today. So it was us pushing the government to get this done. And is it something, do you think, that's often overlooked, though, as far as the cost and, and just how something like this, a uh, funding like this, can make the difference for getting people into that training and for getting more people to become veterinarians? Well, you know, my goodness, like, think about it. We, we think it's a good deal. It's almost laughable that all 40 BC students would be paying $11,000 a year intuition and like to me and you and i'm sure lots of listeners it's like wow that's a huge amount of money but don't forget that up until this announcement today and and a year ago um 20 of those 40 students from bc were actually paying the foreign student rate which was 69,000 or 70,000 dollars a year as opposed to 11,000 and why was that why was that was because, um, you know, BC was always only granted 20 seats at uh, the Western College of Vet Medicine in Saskatoon. Then when University of Calgary opened up their own vet school, there was an extra 20 seats became available uh, for BC students, but they were being charged um, for whatever reason called the international rate, which was $70,000 a year. Uh, well, uh, certainly, I, yeah, you're right. I think people would find 11000 to be steep, let alone uh, paying a rate uh, like that. Uh, Ian, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this uh, today. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Jill. Anytime. 12.48 on this Thursday afternoon. The phone lines are open. We were just chatting with BC Liberal MLA Ian Payton, talking more about an announcement made earlier today that the province is going to permanently double the number of subsidized seats for BC veterinary students that are attending the Western College of Veterinary Medicine and that this is part of the Stronger BC's Future Ready Plan. Curious if you've had an issue trying to get a veterinarian for your pet or livestock and if so what that's been like your thoughts on this announcement let's go to the phone lines and terry is on the line in vancouver terry good afternoon hi i just had to um surrender my pet to the spca because i couldn't find a vet he was suffering he's an older senior dog he can't and um, he was suffering. He suffered all weekend. I could not find. I phoned every vet clinic. Nobody could euthanize him. And then when I did find somebody, they wanted like six and seven hundred dollars. And I, I and so the SPCA, I I I finally got them. They told me to bring him in on uh, Monday, and they took him for me. Uh, but I could not. All weekend he suffered. The whole weekend I couldn't find not one vet. I called like. 20 20 vets. Nobody could help me. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Terry, I'm, I feel awful for you. I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Thank you. It was it was just heartbreaking seeing him suffer for two days, and, and nobody, nobody could help me. And and so, sorry, and just to, to clarify, so the places that you could have taken him, but you couldn't because it was going to be extremely expensive? Yeah, it was over $600 and more, or they just, they, or they weren't open on weekends, or they they wouldn't be able to take him till like next week or a book like I'd have to book like a week or two in advance oh, to get him to get him even to see him right and and even when you told them kind of the situation yeah. and what was happening no mm-hmm. they wouldn't i i talked to a vet directly right in vancouver she said i'm just too busy i can't do it and you you didn't already have a veterinarian for your dog yeah, they weren't. He was away, unfortunately, uh, in India. He was unfortunately away on on holiday, so he wasn't available. But there's a shortage of vets, and that's why the fees are so high. So a lot of people are now are just having to surrender to the SBCA because the, the vet fees are just astronomical now, and there's a shortage of vets. And if you can get in, it, it, it's really hard to even get into them. All right. Well, Terry, I uh, appreciate you calling. And again, sorry that you had to go through that, but thank you so much for calling us. Thank you.
All right. Thank you again uh, for that. Let's go to Jerry on the open line. Jerry, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I'm calling from the States. I don't have any right to ask any for work or anything because we have miniature donkeys here in Sumas. But we have a real critical problem down here in farriers. I don't know if you know about farriers, but they do trim the hooves and everything of these large animals. And I'm wondering, what's the status of farriers up there in Canada? If there is a need, could that program be part of the veterinarians program where they can have more farriers in some of these rural areas and i just throwing that out as a non-canadian but i'm just wondering what the status of farriers are in british columbia thank would, you it's a it's a good question jerry thanks for that uh, i don't know what the status is of farriers maybe if somebody is listening and knows if you want to give us a call again star 9898 or 604-280-9898 we can certainly uh, look into that uh, but uh, good question. I don't know at this point what their status is. Let's continue on the open lines and Connie is on the line from Abbotsford. Good afternoon. Hi, how are you? Very well. What are your thoughts on this? Okay, well, you know what? I just have a story to tell you real sure. quick. I'll try to pick it as quick as possible. We have lots of time. Uh, it's lost, all good. I lost, I lost my cat three weeks ago. Oh. Um, she was six and we bought her permission from somebody from mission and we were told she had her first shot but she didn't. And we didn't know this, uh, so she got very, very sick. Uh, we took her to Clearbrook uh, Vet Hospital in Abbotsford on a Sunday. I called first at 4. My cow was getting sicker by the hour. I called there, and I was told I would have to be a $150 emergency fee if I had to skip the queue or go above the queue and see if she needed a CBC urgently. That, so I said, can you ask your vet? So the vet, she came out, and she said, yeah, he said, bring, bring her down. So I brought her down. Um, they charged us $150 for an emergency visit, um, and, 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 and the problem with the 150 is there was no patients there. There was no other animal. So $895 later that afternoon, I complained about the $150, and the vet looked me straight in the face and said, if you don't like our prices, Go find another vet. Take your cat to another vet. I said, my cat is sick. She's dying. He goes, then that's on your hands. You pay the money. Or the next day I went to Coastal Rivers Pet Hospital. That's just my pet hospital. And I had to put her down $2,000 later. Oh. And I would have paid another 5000 for a blood transfusion because she had feline leukemia. But it, the vet talked me out of it. But they, it, the prices. People can't afford this, and there's not a vet. And the vet lived in Surrey, and that is why he charged me $150 because he had to drive from Aldergrove or Abbotsford to, to Surrey, um, and that's and that was his time. And so I just wanted to share that with you, the prices, and I'm emotional. It's my cat. No, I, under, I understand um, absolutely. So, so these, this has got to stop. You know, two thousand dollars, and I don't have my cat. All right, Connie, uh, I, I, thank you. Thank you for calling in. And uh, I know, unfortunately, others uh, have been through this as well. And I know it's it's very, very sad. But thank you for, for calling in and sharing this. Sorry for being so emotional. No, no. When I heard your story, I thought, you know what, I need to say something. Because when I'm told to take my cat somewhere else because of $2,000 bill, that's not fair. So oh. I'll just... I'll leave you with that. Thank All you. Connie, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Um, I've paid as well the emergency fees, and uh, and I get it. And vets spend a lot of money going to school, and they're specialized, and you will do anything for your animals. I, I get that. But I also understand, Connie, exactly where you are coming from. Uh, let's go to Terry in Port Alberni. Terry, you've got about uh, 30 seconds. I just picked up my dog from the vet. I had a cushion. She had a cushion ligament to her. And it was uh, $5,800. And uh, thank God I had Trepanion insurance on her. They pay 20% of it. But it's forcing people to have their animals put down because they can't afford surgery like that. And it's getting out of hand. They really need to do something about the best situation and what they're charging. It's ridiculous. All right, Terry, thank you for that call as well. And my apologies if we didn't get to you. 
I think we can all agree that bed bugs are pretty gross. And this was a new report that was put out by Orkin Canada, and they listed the top 25 cities for last year when it comes to having bed bugs. And uh, Vancouver came in pretty high to the top of that list. So we wanted to find out a little bit more about why we might be seeing more bed bugs in the cities. And how do you deal with the bed bugs if you happen to have the unfortunate situation of having them in your home. Well, joining us to talk a bit more about this is Kyle Wright, who is the owner of Pet Boss. Kyle, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, not anything that anyone ever wants to see in their home. How do bed bugs get in and what do they do? Yeah, they're purely transferred from home to home. The most common way is when you're traveling. But don't be scared of traveling. So they're always transfer, uh, transferred. In hot climates like South America, they're wandering outside like every other animal. In Canada, it's much too cold. They can't survive outside. They're only transferred in like, from home to home, sometimes use furniture, and definitely travel. Hmm. And, and once they get in, where do they go, and how do they become just, I guess, so prolific? Yeah, yeah, what do they do? So, I mean, they reproduce and mate like everything else, every other bug. It's, it's a pest, right? And it's an insect, and, and they breed a lot. And they just hitchhike, and then they, they're nocturnal too, right? So they're so secretive. There's all kinds of kind of crazy nature animal things they do to remain secretive, which is why they're able to survive and be prolific. So they, they, they hitch a ride in your bag or your purse or on your, on your person, and then you're in your home and your belongings, they spread a little bit. And then your your kids' rooms, et cetera, in the mattress, they, they kind of live on the mattress tubing predominantly. And then it usually takes a couple of weeks for people to realize what's going on. And then they typically, a lot of people try DIY and get rid of them themselves, and it's pretty challenging. So usually people call professionals like us. And at that point, what do you do then when someone calls you in and says, oh, I've got these bed bugs, I've got these things in my home and I need to get rid of them? Sometimes I just tell them to breathe first, right? <laughs> people are really stressed out. I'm serious. Like, I love the counseling part of it because people are so stressed at bed bugs. And I have to remind them, hey, there are way worse things in life than bed bugs, but I know it's not fun. I'm here to help, right? I try and give them a smile and, and everything like that. So... I mean, there are multiple ways of treating them. Some companies will do heat, extreme heat, right? Bring in heaters and heat them up and, and kill the bugs and eggs. We're a smaller company. We do chemical treatments. And, you know, I always get the questions about pesticide. Just because we're using pesticides and chemicals inside a home doesn't mean it's naturally or doesn't mean it automatically it's toxic and dangerous. So it's easy uh, to do that. We can talk about that if you want to. But, yeah, we do a chemical treatments and... Uh, systematic approach and surround them right for pest control it's all about surrounding them so they just can't escape because bugs and pests are really good at surviving and these ones especially seem to be like you said they hitch a ride and they can get in that way and it seems like these these bugs in particular is i don't know if it's because they're so small or 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 another reason but they seem to be really good at not only being evasive but also uh, really good at sticking around well, they're hard to deal with, and especially if someone's going to try and DIY. I mean, it's not like the cheapest thing ever, so you, you want to try it on your own, and people do Googling. You can learn a lot, obviously. It's hard to put it all together, really solve it all on your own. Um, so, you know, people do a good job. Um, I was going to say, on that note, I, I've read so much about bed bugs over the years in my career, and apparently in the 1950s, Everyone was aware of bed bugs, and we were just always aware. And like, you take a taxi, you handling your luggage, handling a briefcase, what have you, going from A to B to C. Always just kind of in the back of their mind, okay, I don't want to get bed bugs. Let me just do some best practices and try and limit the possibility of transferring them in my own home. So people were kind of aware and doing that. Then they came up with DDT, which is like this extremely toxic chemical pesticide back in the seventies, and that they like spraying children or something. I've seen some crazy videos. It's so toxic. Thank God we found it later, but too bad, not at the time, you know, how things were. And so we let our guard down. That was a big message. We let our guard down, and then bed bugs were able to reestablish. And then, like, fast forward to Olympics in Vancouver 2010, and now we're a huge world city on the map, and then some. 
and now everyone's traveling. Everyone's all over the place, and then now they're just loving it, right? Spreading everywhere. I mean, they're like almost a half a centimeter long at times. They're not a tiny uh, microscopic bug pest that people think they are. They're big enough, like a ladybug almost. So we can learn again and kind of bring it back to our 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 forefront, our awareness, right? That's what we kind of need to do. I want to spread awareness, like you'll say, and and just get a better handle on them. So we can do it, but we just got to keep talking about it and just get, a, get in the habit of doing things to prevent them again, which is hard, but we can do it. Uh, you mentioned the size of them. And I think, is that why there, there is that myth that you can't see them, that they're too small to see? Because we don't often see them, but they are big enough, aren't they? Like you said, you, you, if you can, if you, I guess, startle them or surprise them, you can actually get a glimpse of them. Yes, absolutely. They're, they can be pretty fast, but they're not super fast uh, running away. You can see them easily. And so, but they're awake at night, nocturnal, and the main feeding times are between 1 and 5 a.m. So most people are, are sleeping then. And they, you know, when they, I mean, we can, get, we can get gross if you want to. I can tell you about how they remain secretive, but mm. um, <laughs> yeah, they're all, they're just around. What was your question? Sorry. <laughs> oh, oh, just that you can actually see them. It's not like they're, like you said, they're not yeah. microscopic, but they're, but they're nocturnal and, they, and they're good at hiding. Well, I was going to say, like, my parents would put me to bed when I was a young kid, and it was a good night, sleep tight, don't let the bed bugs bite if they do, blah, blah, blah. And we, it was a nursery rhyme, right? It was like a, a whatever. And, and we thought it was just nothing, or it was a myth, or it was a microscopic thing. And, and they're an actual bug, and people are really surprised to hear that. So, so I often have to, to kind of tell them that at the same time. Like, I want people to know that they're a serious issue, and that they are a pest, and they're a, a visible bug but also don't get too freaked out and stressed out. So it's kind of a balance I'm navigating. Right. And and so you mentioned that you use chemicals and that people need not freak out about that as well. It's not like you're spraying DDT in people's homes. But what what is used? What do you use that actually works to get rid of these things? You know, often in pest control in these days, in this part of the world, we're using pyrethrins, which is a derivative, a derivative of a crushed chrysanthemum flowers. It's a synthetic, but you'll find that same thing in RAID. And people, and everyone's different, obviously, which is why I love talking about it. So thank you again. Um, people have RAID in their houses, and they spray it haphazardly sometimes. And it's, that can be way more toxic than the things I use, because it's all about application and exposure. So, yeah, I use pyrethrins and, and a couple of chemicals. And especially, we know in Vancouver, we're so green here. Everyone cares so much about being environmentally friendly, non-toxic for our kids, pets. I get that question every day almost. Uh, you can't, we can't spray in my house. I have kids and pets. Well, hey, it's easy for me to have next to zero or zero exposure, right? Very easy. Um, and these, these chemicals are targeted to kill bugs. Science is great, right? So they, can, they, they make it so that it kills bugs that weigh like a hundredth of a gram, even a baby, six pounds, what have you. Uh, and again, we're not, they're not directly exposed to the products. Um, they're only going and, and being applied to certain spots and services on the home and the, the business where these insects are going to be encountering it. That's the biggest thing there. All right. I want to bring in, uh, we have a caller. Ray is on the line. Ray, I understand uh, you have an experience involving bed bugs that you wanted to share. Yeah. First of all, your guest is bang on. For I starters. hope so. Yeah, no, he's bang on. But um, she went to Italy for to visit family and for two weeks and somehow they got into her baggage and she got infested. Like, it's not me. It's her. Like she brought them back and they started going into the, what is their, um, uh, because I did research on the thing too, on the, on the internet there. Eh? Mm-hmm. And they said that they'd like to come out about five days or five, something like that. And then every three to five feed. days they feed individually. Okay. Okay, sounds good. And do you get, um, I spent the night there to give her a hand on some garden things. And um, they bite, though? Because I, I spent one night at her place there. And uh, I come back with these, you know, on my face there. It's almost like, like well, with me, they get food and drink. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but um, what's, what's the story there on that? She had to pull... Every room that she had there, and I didn't get involved because I'm I'm eerie about buggies, eh? Right. And then, uh, but um, she she had to take and put plastic bags, and she had a professional uh, person. It was in Surrey, 
a professional, and she had to baggage up all her clothes, everything from all her her daughter's room, her room, that sort of thing. Uh, what's the story? And then he came in, and everybody had to be out of the house for probably three, four hours, something like that. Uh, sure. Does that sound professional to you? Uh, yeah, it does. There's a few preparation steps we basically require for these treatments. And, yeah, bag up clothing, emptying drawers or drawers uh, often, and um, kind of quarantining um, um, the clothing, right? And limiting their ability to, to hide, right? They're sort of good at hiding. And then we spray, and then, and, then, and, then, and then it's all. And so they, and yeah, we have to, I mean, you say you're leaving for a few hours, so of course we're having no, um, no exposure. That's how you limit exposure. All right, uh, let's take one more call before we uh, take a quick break. Bruce in New Westminster, I understand you also have uh, an experience with bed bugs you'd like to share. Yeah, yeah, a few years ago I was in a rental building and um, I realized I had bed bugs. I was getting bites and thinking, no, this can't be me. That happens to everybody but me. And then saw one at night, it's, yeah, I got bed bugs. I told the building owner, hey, can you deal with this? And I had a trip to Toronto planned. He said, yeah, yeah, I'll take care of it while you're away. And um, um, when I was away, I come back and he didn't deal with it. Then he comes in with this little tiny steam cleaner and does the seams on my mattress and on my couch. And, of course, they came back again. So finally what I did was I, I'd read online that heaters worked. And you can only go with... Oh, all right. Sorry, Bruce, uh, we, we lost you there. But that's a good question, talking about heat. Uh, Kyle, can you get rid of them with heat? Yeah, you can. And pardon me if I may, if I said something. I've got a lot of customers on job site right now. It's super busy, so I'm trying to navigate both. I want the opportunity. So, yeah, heat's, but some bigger companies have access to bigger machines, right? It's another. It's a pretty newer way of solving bed bug problems. And I hear it's really expensive, too. So that's a factor, right? There's all kinds of different methods and specific tactics to eradicate bed bug problems in, in homes and, and buildings. So, um I know they do heat, and you have to get rid of every bug and egg or else the problem persists. I hear sometimes you can do a bit of a hybrid too, right? So this is just the thing. This is why pest control is so unique because these are animals and, and nature and science. It's not like fixing the brakes on your car. That's kind of a one-time thing, and it's done right every time. So that's why it, you have to kind of just go through a little step and and learn and work hard at it and, and really be dedicated to the solution. So that's yeah, a fine method. Yeah, totally fine method. It's too expensive, but it could be quicker. So there's pros and cons of different tactics. All right. Uh, anything else, Kyle? I know we, we've kept you, and uh, like you said, you're at a job site, but anything else as far as parting words that you want to share with people uh, in case they've uh, dealt with this? Maybe they unfortunately are dealing with this on what they should do? You know, just have it in the back of your mind, especially traveling. If you want to go and really be thorough and lift up the mattress and box spring, look at the headboard, the hotel, and see if there's anything there, or tell the, the front desk, hey, I, I might look for bed bugs if you've had any history. I might stay somewhere else or whatever, a different room if you can accommodate me. Um, just be aware of things like that. Use furniture. Inspect the used furniture first. Inspect underneath or crevices. Look at Google Maps or, sorry, Google Images sometimes, even little app, uh, little uh, help like that beforehand. But also, I want people mainly just to relax. There's so many stressors in life these days. This is really nothing comparatively, and it's solvable. And people might try on their own. I usually say, give it a couple of weeks if you want a DIY. If it's not solved, you better step it up to a professional, best boss, or any company, right? right. Most of them are pretty good in Vancouver. Most of us do bed bugs. So, yeah, relax and take it seriously at the same time. All right, Kyle, thanks so much. Uh, I know, again, busy day for you. So thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks, guys. All the best. We are taking a look now at a Supreme Court of Canada ruling in restoring the conviction of an Ontario motorist who had been drinking, even though police made what is being called an unauthorized unauthorized stop on a private driveway. So that was the crux of this case that, again, made it all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. This was a unanimous ruling, and the court said that given the circumstances of this case, the evidence that was obtained from the 
unlawful police stop, police stop should not have been excluded by an appeal judge. So what does this mean when it comes to police stops and private property? Well, joining us now is Kyla Lee, a lawyer with Acumen Law. Kyla, thanks so much for joining us to take us through this ruling. Thanks for having me. It's an interesting one, and I know it's getting a lot of reaction, and people are asking a lot of questions as well about what this actually means. So can you tell us a bit what was in question here, and and what was this ruling? So this question pertained to the interpretation of a particular provision of Ontario's Highway Traffic Act that permits police officers to randomly stop any driver to check sobriety or their license status or their insurance status. We have almost identical provisions here in British Columbia. And in fact, across Canada, there are identical provisions in every motor vehicle act um, that exists. So the question was whether or not the scope of the Highway Traffic Act applied to people who were no longer on a roadway, um, people who were effectively on private property. And the Supreme Court of Canada found that where the legislation specifically refers to people driving on a roadway, that the extent of a police officer's authority to conduct a random stop is limited to public roadways and can't extend to people who had previously been driving on the roadway but were now on private property. And in this case, too, as you said, though, this was uh, an Ontario case. So uh, from what I understand, Ontario Provincial Police were out patrolling and they said that they saw somebody who was appeared to be or potentially was impaired. So they followed the vehicle. The vehicle went down a road. It then went onto a private driveway that served, I believe it was the home of his parents. One of the officers mm-hmm. said that there were signs of intoxication, including including a small, a strong smell of alcohol. Uh, the driver, apparently, according uh, to the officer, couldn't stand up straight. And that's uh, when he was arrested and taken in for breathalyzer testing. So, but the courts upheld the conviction. So they're saying in this case, though, that was still allowed to be used as evidence and saying that it was the appeal court's uh, mistake, wasn't it, that they didn't allow that? Yes. So what happens when your rights are violated in Canada? I think something that a lot of people don't know is the evidence just doesn't automatically get thrown out. The court still balances whether the breach of your charter rights, in this case, the right not to be arbitrarily detained, is serious, the significance of the impact of that breach on your charter protected rights, as well as um, what the public interest is in securing a conviction through the admission of evidence, and then the court weighs all of those factors. And so here the Supreme Court of Canada said, even though, you know, this is obviously a problem, it was outside the scope of the authority, it did have a significant impact on him in that he was arrested and subject to the whole criminal prosecution as a result, because there was some uncertainty about the interpretation of the law and because impaired driving is very serious and the the ultimate stop re- revealed the evidence of the impaired driving, that it was justified to admit the evidence that was obtained in violation of his rights. So moving forward then, based on this ruling, wouldn't that give police the, wouldn't this set a precedent that it is okay to check people on private property if you then get a conviction? No, um, because it actually becomes worse for police when the law is made clear by something like a Supreme Court of Canada judgment if they knowingly disregard the law because they think the evidence might be admissible anyway. That's considered a very serious, flagrant or willful violation of the charter, which usually results in exclusion of evidence except in sort of extreme cases. This was not willful and deliberate conduct on the part of police. So my expectation going forward is that we will see if stop like this are conducted, more trends toward the evidence being excluded than included simply because impaired driving is a serious offense. Right. So so isn't there an issue, though, if somebody, say police see a vehicle that's swerving on the streets, it's driving erratically, they, they notice this vehicle, maybe they follow it, and but they don't pull this person over and then until not knowing where this car or truck was going, say the, the vehicle then pulls into a driveway. Are they supposed to then just carry on and, and not follow up because the vehicle's now on private property? So there's a really fine line that exists in cases like this, and it, it's hard to distinguish, but it essentially occurs at the point at which police 
stop conducting a random investigation and are acting on their authority to conduct a criminal investigation. So if they see driving behavior that's consistent with impairment and they follow the vehicle to private property, they're acting in the scope of their their criminal law authority as opposed to conducting a random stop, seeing a vehicle pulling out of a a McDonald's drive-through and pulling it over to see if the driver is sober. Those are two different things. And in this case, the court found that the police were essentially acting randomly and pulling him over. And that has to be done on the roadway. So if police intend to do that, I mean, my advice to them is do it right away. When you see the vehicle, don't follow it and wait for it to get off the road. So what if they notice the vehicle and put their lights on and the vehicle didn't stop and they follow it onto private property? Uh, that's perfectly fine. First of all, the, the driver then would have committed an actual offense of flight from police because you're required to stop immediately when signaled to do so. But the Supreme Court of Canada also said in the judgment that the sort of the, the point in time at which the stop takes place is when the communication of the intention to stop happens. So the lights, the siren, using a bullhorn flagging someone down, any of those things are communicating an intention to stop. And as long as the person is on the roadway when the communication is done, if they pull off the roadway afterwards, that's not a problem. And so and I, I think people would agree uh, that, say, a, a police setting up a counterattack road check or a sobriety check in your driveway would be completely ridiculous, uh, that we wouldn't expect that to happen. D- does this give more clarification, though, on what can and can't be done on private property? It does give a lot more clarification on what can and can't be done on private property. And that's something that we've, we've seen a lot of arguments about um, in British Columbia. There have been cases of police preventing people from leaving private property and then checking their sobriety. Um, so even a roadblock right outside the entrance to a driveway um, is not technically permissible under the scope of their authority. So we do see some sort of advice, essentially, from the court being given to police about how to exercise these powers and just, you know, stop the vehicle when it's on the roadway. If it's not on the roadway, wait for it to enter. And if it's leaving the roadway, make sure that you signal it to stop before it leaves the roadway. Did it also offer a direction or definition of private property? Because now I would think the question would raise, I think we get that a driveway that your your own private property is what it is. It's private property. But what if we're talking about the driveways at a condo complex or a parking lot? Each of those cases are going to have to be assessed on individual factors, especially because this does turn on definitions in provincial legislation. For example, here in BC, we define a highway as including some private property if that private property is open to the public for parking or servicing motor vehicles. So if you have, you know, a I own a parking lot in Merritt. (laughs) If people park on that, that's open to the public. I don't put any restrictions on it. Um, That would be, even though it's my private property, it it is public in the sense of it being a roadway. But uh, if you have a parking lot of an apartment complex with signs that say it's for tenants parking only, even if the public can drive in there and park, because the signs exist, the law in British Columbia has said that that is not a public place or a public roadway. So it depends on the facts and depends on the wording of the legislation. All right. And I I may be going far down, too far down this rabbit hole, but that just made me think, too. So does it have to be your private property in that your parking lot is technically your private property? But what if? If I or somebody drives onto a friend's driveway, is that then also considered private property? That would still be considered private property because it doesn't fall within the definition of a roadway. Although, if you are on somebody's private property without permission and it's nighttime, it is a criminal offense to trespass at night. And so the police might have authority investigating the trespass um, issue to come onto the private property and detain you. And then because they're acting in the scope of criminal law authority, uh, they wouldn't be prohibited from doing that. So there are workarounds for the police. All right. Is this something that you see and deal with quite often and that this, this needed to go to the Supreme Court and it's good that we have this ruling? Absolutely. I get cases uh, probably every week of somebody who's stopped in some sort of private place, uh, parking lots of restaurants, people who sleep in their cars or leave their cars overnight and are moving their cars in the parking lot and police just pull in to check sobriety. Um, This happens all the time. And so this type of clarification from the Supreme Court of Canada, even though it's about Ontario's Highway Traffic Act, it applies to British Columbia, and it's going to inform the interpretation of lots of criminal and uh, roadside prohibition cases.
All right. Very interesting case. Kyla Lee, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me.